Two and a Half Admins, episode 121. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary Clara plug, Alan, is FreeBSD versus Linux networking. Yeah, uh, so this article is kind of a Rosetta Stone to help you translate back and forth between FreeBSD and Linux as far as network commands and configuring the network and so on. So if you're from one environment to the other and need to go to the other side, this is a great way to kind of get familiar with what the other side looks like and enough to help you translate what you already know into the commands you need to get going. Well, link in the show notes as usual. I saw an interesting article on Pat Regan's blog, Can You Save Money By Changing the CPU Frequency Governor on Your Servers? And the spoiler is, yes, you can save a little bit. He did it by switching to conservative. He did also try pinning the frequency and found that performance was just terrible. But it did actually save quite a bit of electricity. To be clear, the uh, changing the governor is completely different than just artificially pinning your clock speed low. That's an idea that's been floating around for quite some time when you don't necessarily need the performance. Hey, maybe I can use less power just by artificially, you know, limiting the clock speed on my CPU. And it usually doesn't have very good results because typically what you find when you just change the maximum clock speed for your CPU is that you still do the same amount of work with the CPU. It just takes, you know, twice or three or four times as long depending on what your CPU's maximum frequency was and, you know, what you pinned it down to. Now, changing the governor is a much more intelligent, for lack of a better word, way to approach this. And I don't just mean like, you know, oh, you're a smart guy, you did a smart thing. I mean that it's a, it's a much more complex approach, even though it's a relatively simple knob. You're actually telling a power management system now, I want you to prioritize savings over the maximum possible performance. And yes, that gives you better results. It will still allow your CPU to spin up toward maximum when it really needs to, when it's got a long running job, which you can tweak that further, which Pat talked about. He spent, I don't know, I think he said like a day or two. Far too long. Yeah, obsessively going over settings and, uh, you know, messing with what the time intervals were before it would allow the CPU to kick up and, you know, all this kind of stuff. You don't really need to go through all the nonsense that he did. You can just tell your computer hey, (laughs) I want you to govern for efficiency rather than performance and let it do the thing. This is not going to be something that you're like, you know, oh, hey, you know, I I see a whole bunch of money coming back into my budget because I'm not burning all that money on power now. We're talking about typically saving somewhere between like $10 and $50 a year from a really power inefficient machine. Uh, Pat's machine that he was doing this on was the old, uh, you know, AMD FX 8350 the uh, pile driver, if I remember correctly. 2017 vintage. Yeah, those were the CPUs that were so terrible that AMD stopped making performance CPUs at all for like four years after that. I find a lot of people don't quite realize that, but for like four years, AMD only made budget all-in-one CPUs because the pile driver architecture was such a shit show that they just dropped out of the race until they came up with a Ryzen, and now that changed the game again. But uh, at any rate, the the whole reason that Piledriver sucked so bad is because it consumed incredible amounts of power. I mean, we're talking about CPUs that could go up to like 300 watts on the stock profile, which again, that's above the design TDP rating that you see on the box. But if you've got adequate cooling, things will go high. Yeah, hopefully you, you know all those details already. But the point is, it's an incredibly power and efficient CPU. And even starting from there, he only got back like... 20 bucks over a year. 
Now, where you can see bigger gains than that is if, like myself, you live in a particularly hot climate and you're air conditioning an office all year long. You may see bigger savings simply out of not generating that much extra heat in the first place, more than the direct savings from the power consumption on the bill from your individual server. Yeah, it's, you know, the similar thing happens to laptops, right? Where it's interesting to look at how sometimes scaling the CPU up and going into the, the highest turbo mode and getting a task over and done with so you can go back to sleep will use a lot less power than running for longer at a medium or low clock speed to finish the job while trying to save power. And it can be counterintuitive that using more power for less time uses less power in total. I got to be honest, it's gotten me thinking about maybe I need to start looking at CPU governor settings on the backup server sitting in the rack right next to me in my tiny little air-conditioned almost all year long office. Because, uh, you know, we're we're recording this in uh, early December now, and it's quite cold outside in my opinion, but in my office, I'm removing layers because <laughs> it's hot because of all the machinery in here. Yeah, I don't know that it would save very much for me because the majority of the power comes from the like 800 terabytes of spinning disks that are kept spinning all the time. Not even a petabyte? It's just the backups. Like I have a petabyte elsewhere, but not at my house. Well, this is something I've been thinking about quite a lot because I've been thinking of upgrading my NAS from the J1800 Celeron to an i5, a 9600K machine. And... um I don't know whether I should just let it run at stock frequency and, you know, just let it burst up when it needs to. As Alan said, maybe that is ultimately going to save me power in the long run. Well, that's what the governor profile does. Exactly. The governor profile allows it to spin up to maximum speed when it needs to. What it tries to do is keep it from spinning all the way up into max turbo, you know, just to do some silly little background task. You know, your computer fires up to check for updates or whatever. The idea is that when you have a, a heavy hitting task that needs all that performance, it will spin the CPU up to do that and spin it right back down again as quickly as it can. So the governor profile is all about, you know, when those how those decisions get made as to when the CPU is allowed to spin all the way up. But it absolutely is. That's what I was talking about before, the difference between this, you know, CPU governor profile versus literally just artificially pinning your clock speed low. If you just pin the clock speed low, then you may not save any power whatsoever. In some cases, like with laptops, it can actually get worse. You can see your battery life decrease because it turns out that, you know, you're running tasks that should have completed relatively quickly in a well-optimized, you know, portion of the heat and power consumption profile for that mobile CPU now is having to drag on for bloody ever at its bare minimum, where it turns out it actually isn't quite as power efficient doing actual work when it's pinned down that low. Yeah, the governor is is all about the the thresholds. You know, instead of in the more aggressive modes, it's like as soon as it looks like your CPU is trying to do work, it's going to ramp all the way up to try to, to, to get the most performance. Whereas in conservative mode, it's like, okay, you've been working. It's been a second or two. All right, let's ramp the CPU up and get it over with. It puts it on less of a hair trigger, but still will let you use the max performance in order to A, not make the machine slower, but also, like we're talking about, get the task over with so we can go back to a low power state. That seems to make more sense for a home server, but not a desktop. You want a desktop to be able to spin up as quickly as possible because you don't want it to be even fractions of a second that you're waiting around for it to. It depends, like, how often are you going from idle to busy? 
like if you're playing a video game or something, it's going to be busy the whole time, right? Or if you're actively browsing, your your CPU is probably not getting to idle anyway. True. It also just kind of depends on your priorities. Mm -hmm. The same performance profile that would be the like balls to the wall performance profile on a laptop is considerably more conservative than the default on a desktop because on the desktop, the usual engineering consideration is who cares max power R R R R. And you know, if that's not how you feel about it, then you can tweak it more towards your taste by prioritizing efficiency. Yeah. I, I did very much this kind of tuning on this desktop for the fans, basically doing the opposite. I noticed that because the CPU jumps around quite a bit, performance-wise and, and heat-wise, the fan would spin up and down and it's just constantly changing velocity. And I would hear the difference in the tone and it was starting to bother me. So I made a new profile. It's like, only if the temperature stays high for like 10 seconds, then speed up the fan, but don't turn it back down for at least 30 seconds so that the sound isn't just constantly changing pitch and catching my attention instead of being able to just ignore it. I'm very grateful for that, Alan. Almost as grateful as you turning your heating off while we record. Yes. Makes my job a lot easier. Well, I'm depending on this computer to keep me warm in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to leno.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's leno.com slash 25A. Matthew Garrett posted an article, Making Unfishable Two-Factor Authentication Fishable. So Matt's article starts saying, you know, one of the huge benefits of WebAuthN is that it makes traditional phishing attacks impossible. The idea is if you get sent a bogus link that's not to the site you think it is, but it looks like it is, and you click through and ask for your username and password, and you enter them, then the attacker tries those same credentials at the real website, causing that website to send you a 2FA token, like SMS or whatever. And then you type that 2FA into the bogus site, they've now got that and your username and password and can log in to the real site using your credentials. So WebAuthn is supposed to stop this from happening by having the 2FA be tightly tied to the site that it's supposed to be coming from so that somebody can't man in the middle or fish the 2FA token. But it turns out the RFC, which, you know, exists for good reason and so on, leaves a hole in the protocol that makes it possible to still fish what was supposed to be the unfishable 2FA mechanism. Probably the best way to exploit this is it kind of boils down to like a watering hole attack. You can cause the authentication attempt to pop up a dialogue on the victim's machine, and it will be a legit authentication dialogue from that site. So if the user isn't thinking about it, just like, oh, well, you know, I I guess sitename.com wants me to put my password in. This is sitename.com asking for it after all, so let me just go ahead and put that in and satisfy it. 
but what you actually did was authenticate the request that some other attacker made to get their device logged in. So you just thought site.com wanted me to log in, but what you actually did is tell site.com to log attacker in Bangladesh or whatever in for you. Yeah, and so as part of the protocol, it's got this device authentication grant, which is, you know, instead of having to type your password in on the TV, you can have it ask your phone for you to authenticate. And then while it does that, your TV is checking, you know, have have they successfully logged in yet? And once they do, the TV lets you access things or, or buy something off Amazon or whatever. But it turns out there's a bit of a flaw there that can allow them to still fish things. Instead of your Roku asking you to log in from your phone, what if it's an attacker? And if the attacker managed to obfuscate the URL in the right way, then the user can fall for it, like Jim was saying. So it just comes down to this age-old compromise between usability and security then? Always does. Yep. And, you know, the RFC kind of pictured this problem and recognized it and set out some mitigations, but it turns out nobody implements those. They just do the bare minimum to be able to make authentication work, not all the more complicated stuff to make sure that the man-in-the-middle attacks don't work. As Matthew says at the end, there's no real moral to the story here other than security is hard. Sorry. (laughs) I guess the other moral is, you know, just think about why you might be getting an authentication dialogue and whether you actually want to authenticate or not. Yes. Just because it's from a site that you recognize and legitimately from that site even doesn't necessarily mean that you should just give it your password because it said, hey, give me your password. Yeah. If if I'm not trying to do business with Amazon and I get a pop-up to log into Amazon, I'm going to be like, that's fishy. With a PH. Well, this ties in with a Twitter thread that I saw from Mike Felch, where he talks about how it's really easy to create legitimate looking phishing links using Google Docs and specifically comments in Google Docs. Because if you put a URL in a Google Doc comment, then it will give you a URL that starts with google.com. And yeah, okay, afterwards, then it's, you know, URL question mark Q equals and then the actual URL. But most people are not trained to look at the whole thing. They're trained to look at the first part of it. And this could be very dangerous, I think. Yeah, you definitely trick some people by giving them URLs that start with google.com, but take them who knows where. Yeah, I mean, I tried it with just going to 2.5admins.com and it worked perfectly still. It seems like they're not going to fix this. No, they're not. They've already said it's it's working as intended. It's a won't fix for them. Although I kind of assumed they would have, like, on purpose, a lot of other stuff. Like if you try to link to a picture you put in a Google Doc or stuff, it uses like this googleusercontent.com or usercontent.google.com or something so that it is a separate domain so that they can keep stuff where you might be able to inject JavaScript from running on the official google.com. And it feels like if they literally just made it redirect.google.com slash blah, 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 that would still keep it somewhat official, but also make it more obvious that it's going to take you somewhere that's not Google. I don't know. Would it? Would it really? If somebody was like, hey, click this link that starts with google.com, how likely are you to click that? Well, if it specifically said redirect.google.com instead of google.com. No, no, no. I'm asking you as is. If I send you a link that's like google.com slash bunch of weird bullshit, you know, for a, for a quick link, are you just going to be like, oh, well, that's Google. It's legit. 
No, you're going to be like, well, that's weird. Nobody sends links from Google.com, whatever. Like, I mean, I know this because I'm one of the few weirdos that actually relatively frequently does do that. I'll send a link to somebody that is directly to a Google search to illustrate a point. But like, I'm the only one I ever see doing direct links to Google.com slash anything. So basically, I mean, yeah, it, it's worth something in the sense that you've got a domain with well, let's just go ahead and say lots of Google juice, um, you know, that, that you can use to wrap your your phishing links. I mean, yeah, that's certainly worth something. And it's certainly worth us telling people, you know, hey, keep an eye out for this. But again, ultimately, like if you're a security conscious person, that already should have raised red flags instantly. Why do I have a link that's Google.com slash anything? Right. And who's this person sending me the link and why am I wanting to click on it anyway? But, you know, obviously more along the case of, of more typical users who no, not to click things, but they're like, oh, but it's a Google. Of course, those people you could trick by just putting the Google.com or whatever. Yeah. You can trick those people with the the old trick of, you know, Google.com dot it's not really Google dot a whole bunch more crap dot blah dot blah dot, you know, spammer dot biz. And people just see it starts Google.com. You're like, yep, good enough. Well, I would counter that by saying that these days the browser really highlights the actual domain. Like, I'm looking at our Jitsi Meet URL now, and Firefox has made jit.si the focal point of that URL, and Chrome does it too, right? Yeah, but that's not where you see the problem. I mean, where you get these dodgy links is typically going to be in an email, and you're not looking at it in your browser, you're looking at it in your crappy little email client on your phone. But yeah, to, to Jim's point, if you put one of these Google URLs into the address bar of your browser, it's going to go away and take. it's going to instantly redirect to the mm-hmm. other site and not sit there and show you the google.com highlight. Yeah, by the time you can see the google.com whatever in the address bar on the browser, it's already too late. You already you already bit. The hook is firmly sunk into your cheek at that point. True. So you're saying this isn't really a problem then? I'm not saying that. It's a problem. I I do think that the way Google handles that is pretty irresponsible. You have to be very careful how you use a domain name with the power of google.com and they clearly were not. But the reason that Google says it's working as intended and won't fix is these are ephemeral. They don't stay live for very long. Mm. And um, my best guess is that Google's engineers decided, whether rightly or wrongly, that specifically they're ephemeral enough that a spammer, a typical spammer is not going to have time to run a spam campaign and expect people to have opened the email and clicked the links before they've expired. And it's not a completely open redirect. You can't just take an existing one and change the URL part of it. You, there's a, another part. So you have to you know, go and make a comment in the a Google Doc, or I think there's a Python script included in the Twitter thread there, where you have to go and like get a different URL each time. So you can't just manufacture these. They have to actually come from Google. They're basically authenticated slightly. But again, that's just part of the short-livedness. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows, and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, 
Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com slash 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first of all, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Steve writes, we are a large medical organization with roughly 2,000 servers to monitor. Our monitoring mostly consists of emails from ESCOM that are ignored. We have no central logging. The environment is almost 100% on VMware, 80 to 90% on Windows. The balance are Linux appliances, which are supported, read neglected, by whatever vendor provided them. The CIO has a huge budget line item for next year to implement a commercial monitoring system that includes views for IT, up-down, troubleshooting, etc., app teams, user experience monitoring, and the business, high-level BS charts. We're going to evaluate the Gartner-recommended vendors, including Splunk, OpsRamp, and Dynatrace. I'm in charge of the evaluation. Yay. My quandary is this. We have no culture of system monitoring. When apps go down, we get a call. There is no network operation center. When troubleshooting, the admins are used to not having a centralized logging system. It seems to me that we'd be better off with Nagios for up-down, service health, resource monitoring, etc., and working to build out the network operation center, getting logs centralized, etc. We're fully licensed for MSSCOM, which is awful, but does provide historical stats. Once we have said system built, then we could look at multi-million dollar commercial product. As it stands, the CIO is vehemently opposed to Nagios or indeed any free monitoring tools. He's otherwise pretty rational, so I haven't figured that one out. I and several on my team have a long history of using and loving Nagios. Any advice? Well, if he hates it because it's free, then just buy it. <laughs> I mean, I use the community edition, but there is also an enterprise edition that does cost money. I actually got exposed to that fairly recently for the first time in production. A client of mine got acquired by another company, and the other company was using the Enterprise Edition of Nagios. It's a good bit shinier on the surface. Um, you can do a lot more from the web interface than you can from the Community Edition, which is it's it's kind of both a plus and a minus. The extra complexity comes with extra chances for the whole thing to break as well. Now, with that said, I, I very seriously do not want to say it's unreliable because I have a very small sample size and the folks that I witnessed with the broken Enterprise Edition Nagios had been just absolutely abusing the crap out of it with no idea what they were doing. Like they had a habit of any time they thought it was running slow, just literally turning the power off on the whole machine that was running it and turning it back on again. So... Unfortunately, this is one thing that I will absolutely say negative about the Enterprise Edition of Nagios. There were a bunch of my ISOM tables and MySQL feeding that thing. And my ISOM does not like to be crashed. <laughs> it's not NODB. It is not journaling. It is not crash safe. So their habit of literally just, you know, flipping the power whenever they felt like it may have been the entirety of the issues with it. But again, it, it is still Nagios. You'll recognize it. You'll be able to work with it. And uh, 
give that a shot. Sometimes the answer to a CIO who is just, you know, absolutely thinks that anything free must be terrible is just find a way to take their money for it. And there usually is one. Yeah. Sometimes it comes down to they need somebody to be able to yell at if something isn't working. And there are people that can provide that. Although looking at kind of what you described, it's like, well, if your team already loves Nagios and so on, why have you not been using it already? Uh, and then maybe you wouldn't be in such a, <laughs> a bad place. And then, you know, even if you get Nagios, that's not going to solve central locking and so on. Or something like Splunk, that's the whole point, is to centralize all those logs and, and make them searchable. So I don't know that it makes sense to do one before even looking at the others. But yeah, I think Jim's solution of getting a commercially supported version of Nagios might solve the problem, at least and get you the up-down stuff. But if you want, you know, uh, user experience monitoring and latency monitoring and stuff for the apps, then you might need one of the more combined solutions. But most of those are going to take a big integration effort because your apps are going to be different than other apps and it's not going to just be installed as software and it's done either. So it's hard to say, but maybe starting where Jim said is is a good bet. But also don't forget that Nagios is only going to solve the up, down, and maybe some resource monitoring. It's not going to solve all the things you were actually looking for. Well, I don't think it was supposed to. No. I, I believe our listener specifically said they thought we could start out with this and then go to build on, you know, more things later. And I would agree with that plan. I, I think, it, you know, the first thing that you really need is the, you know, Nagios up, down, not just of machines, but of services, ideally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that's your first step. If you don't have that, it's too early to be talking about centralized logging and, you know, all of the fancier stuff looking at fine-grained performance analysis and all that. Just figure out whether your crap is actually working or not first. Yeah, or, you know, be able to fix stuff before people call about it. Okay, Robin writes, I was wondering if you could mention your thoughts on using ZFS on only one disk, since my Intel NUC only takes two disks and one is used by the operating system. I'm going to run Docker with Ubuntu server on it, and the data is not super important, but I need it to be backed up once a day. I have another server on my network that runs RAID Z2, so I should be able to send snapshots from the NUC. I've also read that you should store two copies of each file so you don't lose data because of bit rot. A single disk is fine. Like I do that in my laptop because the only way to get a second disk was to like tear it apart and find a tiny NVMe that could go in the modem slot or something. And yeah, if you're backing it up, then if you're not depending on it for high availability, then then it's totally fine, just like any other file system. And yeah, backing it up to your RAID Z2 machine with snapshots possibly much more frequently than once a day, means that if something does happen, you'll be able to restore very quickly and everything will be fine. As far as using the, you know, store two copies, you know, you can set copies equals two in ZFS, but you really have to consider what types of failure are you trying to protect against? Because if most of the time you're just going to restore from the copy off your RAID Z2 server anyway, then, you know, using up twice as much space for every file on the local machine isn't really gaining you much. And if the problem is more than just a bad sector or something losing the data, the disk just stops working, which happens a lot more, especially with flash-based media, then you only got half the usable storage out of that storage for no reason. So if you have the good backups, then you're better off not trying to depend on the copies equals two thing anyway. It's also worth pointing out that uh, metadata blocks already have copies equal to on by default. 
So if your concern is that, you know, something in the block pointer tree might get corrupt and, you know, wipe out the entire pool because you only had one copy of that, that's not an issue. Copies equals two is on automatically for the metadata. You don't need to mess with that. Beyond that, if there's like a certain set of relatively small files that are extremely mission critical to you, it might make sense to put those in a data set with copies equal to set. But I certainly would not turn that on for the entire pool. Keep in mind that in addition to the storage space consumed, there are some pretty severe performance implications going on with copies equal to because you literally have to write two copies of everything, which is not a big deal for metadata. But, you know, when you're copying around those uh, three gigabyte Linux ISOs that you downloaded legally off the Internet, uh, if you've got copies equal to on, that's going to be a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's going to be half as fast, basically. <laughs> And as long as you're sending those snapshots to another machine, then yeah, there's no reason to bother cutting your storage in half and your performance in half on the local machine. Yeah, because even if a scrub finds that a file has been corrupted... Yeah, zpool status is going to be like, hey, restore this one file from your backup. Yeah, and then you do and it's all fine, right? Well, now I, I will say that I haven't always had the best luck with that. Once you've got corruption that can't be repaired from redundancy or parity... I have had very indifferent results with fixing that literally by just deleting the one affected file. You can absolutely end up with things that you can't figure out how to get rid of. Orphaned nodes, you know, what have you. You may not be able to see in using your pool any problems at all, but when you check zpool status, it says these files are corrupt and must be restored from backup, and there's just like a bunch of hex code and angle brackets underneath that. Yeah, you're not going to be able to delete that or figure out where it is. Yeah, now I did have this with an SMR drive, uh, an old Barracuda that I'd been running ZFS on, on just a, a backup backup machine. And that started giving me errors. And so I, I did what you said, just copied the files from a, a known good backup, but then ended up getting these weird errors. And eventually I just thought, this disk is going bad, man. I need to take this out of service because it wouldn't even do scrubs anymore because it was just too degraded. ZFS only knows the hex codes of the things that are broken. And then it's able to use the parent information to walk back to the parent and then go forward and figure out what the name of the file is. But if you've deleted a file and only exists in a snapshot, then it won't be able to look up the file name or if the directory entry itself is damaged or many other possible situations. So you can't always do it. But if it happens that the corruption is literally just in the data of one file, then just restoring that file will solve it. But yes, if it's in the something more structural, then you have more problems still. And keep in mind, again, that, you know, if if it occurred in a file that you haven't actually modified for like a year, and, you know, you keep a snapshot history, like a responsible ZFS admin, you know, maybe you keep 30 dailies, three monthlies, you know, whatever, uh, you're going to have to nuke every single one of those snapshots to get rid of that file because you can't just delete that file out of a snapshot. You can delete that file out of the current file system, but if that file in the same condition existed in snapshots, well, then you're still going to have corrupt blocks, which, among other things, is going to break replication entirely. You will not be able to replicate while you've got corruption in the pool. It will just flat say no, because I've been bitten by that before. But the big thing here, like this is not really something you typically have to be concerned about if you're running, you know, a mirror or, a you know, one or more RAID Z devs, whatever. Uh, when you're more likely to encounter a problem like this, if you go, well, you know, this machine's not that big a deal. I can just go ahead and set up a single SSD pool 
on this machine. And then it runs fine for like a year. And, you know, then you have like one corrupt block on that SSD and you're like, damn you, Intel. Because when it happened to me, it was an Intel Cherryville SSD. And I ended up having to manual brute force copy an entire, uh, God, I think like three and a half terabyte VM image, like off the machine, not replication, copy like CP, because I couldn't replicate it because there's a corrupt block in it and there's nothing I could do about that. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at Elon Musk. I'm at Alan Jude. See you next week.